For the first of two scripture readings, please turn to the Epistle of James in the New Testament, chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 27. We learn here about how the believer is to deal with temptation and to understand how sin works. Hear the word of God in James 1 at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted for go- by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And our Old Testament reading is Genesis 3, and the, the text will be verses 1 through 6. Again, hear the word of God. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The text ends here. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, 
I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open so you can follow along to see that what is in the sermon was first in the Bible. May God bless that reading of his own holy and infallible word. The commentator Matthew Henry made the following comment on Genesis 3. And I quote, The story of this chapter is perhaps as sad a story, all things considered, as any we have in all the Bible. In the foregoing chapters, we have had the pleasant view of the holiness and happiness of our first parents, the grace and favor of God, and the peace and beauty of the whole creation, all good, very good. But here the scene is altered. We have here an account of the sin and misery of our first parents, the wrath and curse of God against them, the peace of creation disturbed and its beauty stained and sullied, all bad, very bad. How has the gold become dim and the most fine gold changed? Oh, that our hearts were deeply affected with this record, for we are all nearly concerned in it. Let it not be to us as a tale that is told. End quote. Genesis 3 tells us how sin came into the world. Therefore, this is a crucial chapter. We can't make sense of the rest of the Bible without it. We can't make sense 
of human experience without this true story. This chapter answers the question in the theme, where did sin come from? And there's a two-part answer. First, we'll learn about sin in the heavenlies, and second, we'll learn about sin in the Garden of Eden. Was sin always part of creation? Certainly not. Everything God made was good. Genesis 1 says at the end of every day that it was good. And at the end of the chapter, it says that everything was very good. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. That's verse 31. So we have clear reason to believe, clear evidence from Scripture that sin was not part of the original creation. Sin didn't happen because the material world is bad in comparison to a good spiritual realm. That's a false teaching. Genesis 3 tells us how sin came into the world. But we need to go to other books of the Bible to learn something about how sin came into the universe. Sin is such a terrible thing that it started in the heavenly realms. In his oracle, his inspired prophecy against the king of Babylon, Isaiah says words that also apply to a rebel angel named Daystar or Lucifer. We read of this in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Remember those words. I will be like the Most High. This was Lucifer's plan, but it didn't succeed. There's a similar section in Ezekiel 28. You can note that if you like. Ezekiel 28. And there, the word of the Lord is addressed to the king of Tyre, but he also speaks of the punishment of the devil. In Revelation chapter 12, it tells us of a rebellion in which a great red dragon swept one-third of the stars from the sky with his tail as he battled against God, his angels, and his church. And Revelation 12, verse 9, is particularly relevant to the story of Genesis 3. This is what we read in Revelation 12, 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. For reasons that God hasn't revealed to us, we learn of a talking serpent in Genesis 3, the first book of the Bible. And it's not until we get to the last book of the Bible that the power of the devil in the serpent is revealed to us. The rebels were unsuccessful in their attempt to take over the universe and dethrone God. We learn in Jude 1 verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Evil began in heaven, but it didn't remain there. The devil and his demons were cast out. When did these angels rebel? We don't know. 
How long did Adam and Eve live in the Garden of Eden before they fell? We don't know that either. But we do have enough information as we need to say where sin came from. It started in the heavenly realms in an unsuccessful rebellion among the angels who wanted to take God's place. And they came to earth, and so did sin. Based on what we read in Jude and in Revelation, there's biblical support for the belief that the devil used the body of a serpent to attract the attention of Eve. And we'll spend the rest of our time in Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The qualities of the serpent made it a suitable tool for the devil's task. Before the fall, the serpent was interested. It was intelligent. It was a beautiful creature. Apart from the activity of the devil, there was no reason for Eve to be afraid of or disgusted by the serpent. In his great power, the devil uses the vocal organs of the serpent to speak to Eve. Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? If this story went the way that stories normally go, Eve would be talking to the serpent, not the other way around. Adam was the one who gave the serpent its name. Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over the animals under God's authority and as his representatives in that way. And here comes an animal interfering in some something that's none of its business, trying to get Eve to question God's word. The natural order has been disturbed here. Things are not as they should be. The Garden of Eden was a wonderful place. There were many new things for, for Adam and Eve to explore and learn about. For whatever reason, Eve isn't alerted to the unnaturalness of a talking serpent or the impertinence of its question. And we need to be clear, congregation, it was an impertinent question. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The question was designed to make the command of God to appear ridiculous and arbitrary and mean-spirited. Besides being an attack on the character of God, this question was an attack on the authority of God's word. And that's happening today in at least two ways. First, society sees it as normal that God's word doesn't direct the policies of government and the decisions of government. All religions are lumped together. They are erroneously seen as teaching the same thing. And they are seen as equally irrelevant in the formation of public policy. But we need to see that as an attack on the truth and on the authority of the word of God. The answer is not for Christians to rebel in an attempt to take over the government, to barge into government offices, but it is a call for those of us who are committed to the word of God to strive for consistency in every area of our lives. We need to be unapologetic in terms of the Bible being foundational for our beliefs. Yes, the defense of our faith must be done in a Christ-like spirit. But if God has spoken clearly, anything less than clarity and conviction is unbecoming for those who hold to the word of God. 
The second attack on the Word of God comes from the broader church that wants to let go of teachings that are seen as objectionable in society. If society wants us to change our interpretation of God's Word, we need to see that just as the power of the devil was active in that talking serpent, so the power of the devil is active on, in the attack on God's truth. Dear ones, this is a time for vigilance. This is a time for unwavering commitment to the Word of God. The serpent made it sound as if God had said that Adam and Eve weren't allowed to eat of any of the trees of the garden. But if you look back to Genesis 2, verse 16, you'll read something very different there. Genesis 2, 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Here was a lavish, gracious provision. Only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was withheld from them. And if you look down to Genesis 3, verse 2, where Eve relays a description of God's provision to the serpent, she says, we may eat of the trees of the garden. That sounds like a grudging permission has been given. It sounds far less generous and wonderful than the way that God described his provision for them. God had given them wonderful and varied provision. Think about how tasty fruits and vegetables and herbs would have tasted then. If you've eaten garden-fresh vegetables and fruit, you know it's a wonderful experience. It changes the quality and the character of your food. Even after the fall, these things taste good. And this was before the fall. And it was all for them. Theirs for the taking. Theirs for the enjoyment. Again, dear ones, there's a lesson for us. The path towards sin often involves our failure to see the provision of God for what it is. When we look at the prosperity of others and compare our situation with theirs, we run the great danger of discontentment with what God has given to us. How we need the reminder that all of us have much more than many poor people in this world. And all of us, you and me, all of us have more than we deserve. God has been gracious to us. We deserve nothing. And he gives us all that we have. The remedy to the danger of minimizing God's blessings for us is to look back at what he's given. To think of the past in that way. How he's provided. How he brought you through that difficult time when you feared you would be overwhelmed. Think of the gifts and abilities that he's given to you. Pray for a consciousness of his blessings that God gives daily and throughout your lives. That then will lead to a realistic view of God's goodness and it will repel temptations to discontentment. And it will re repel temptations for us to use sinful means to take what God has withheld from us for his own all-wise sovereign reasons. The next thing I want us to see from Genesis 3 is that the path to sin also involves diminishing the threat of judgment. The path to sin involves diminishing the threat of judgment. We see that in verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So again, Eve is repeating, or passing on the commandments of God regarding the trees of the garden to the serpent here. 
Eve wasn't alive when God gave these instructions to Adam. If you look to verse 17 of chapter 2, you'll see that God said that the consequence for eating the forbidden fruit is given there. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God said nothing about Adam and Eve touching or not touching the tree. We don't know where that addition came from. It made God sound more restrictive than he was. And Eve's words, lest you die, were far weaker than the certainty with which God had spoken. The English translation gives the idea of certainty. You shall surely die. And you may have been told by other preachers and commentators that the literal Hebrew text says, dying you shall die. And that's true. Death was not just a possible result for disobedience. It was certain. God said so. But the force of God's statement had greatly weakened by the time Eve spoke to the serpent. God was as clear as he could be about death and judgment. Isn't it true that ours is a day in which the broader church needs to recover such clarity? We live in a world where it is thought that all but a few people are guaranteed entrance into heaven. And the way that it is said that they get there is by dying. Yet God's word is clear that all have sinned. And sin that has not been atoned for must be punished eternally in hell. This world doesn't want to hear that message. People don't like it. It makes them feel guilty. And there are churches and there are preachers who won't proclaim the commands of the law and the threats of certain judgment to those who won't repent. Dear ones, the gospel was not designed to make us feel better about ourselves. The gospel wasn't designed to make decent people a little better. The good news of the gospel is so good because the bad news is appallingly bad. Hell is real. Hell is forever. Hell is the inevitable end of sinners except for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about what an ugly, anti-God thing sin is, how good God is, and how wicked sin is in contrast, it is a ploy of the devil to convince men, women, boys, and girls that their sin is not so bad, that God doesn't really mean what he says about punishment. The path to sin includes the direct contradiction of the word of God. We see that in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God had said, In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So here the serpent directly contradicted the word of God. He lied to Eve, and Eve believed him. And this is not just about Eve. It's about Adam too. The word you in verses 1 through 5 is a plural word. It includes Adam as well. It wasn't just directed to Eve. The serpent contradicted the word of God, that the punishment of death would be on all humanity if Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Eve focused on what the serpent was saying 
instead of the rock-solid Word of God. If God's Word would have been foundational and God's provision would have been the focus of her attention, she would have been safe. She would have had a firm place from which to counter the temptation and to reject it for the lie that it was. The serpent promised that she could disobey and live. Would Eve believe God, the God who had brought her into an existence, or listen, listen to a talking snake in an unnatural conversation that promoted an unbiblical course of action? How then does this apply to us? I know that we don't encounter talking serpents, but we live in this world. And as Christians, we battle against the flesh. And behind the world and the flesh is the activity of the devil and his demons who want us to sin. The only way to recognize lies and to refute lies that we tell ourselves and that God's enemies tell us is if we love the truth, we're familiar with the truth, and our thinking is patterned after the truth. And this truth can be found exclusively and clearly in the Bible, the inspired word of God. The path to sin involves thinking the worst about God. I say that on the basis of verse 5, where the serpent gives reason for God withholding the fruit from Adam and Eve. Verse 5 says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil wanted Eve to think that God was withholding something good from Adam and her. He wanted Eve to think that God was petty and had made an irrational and arbitrary rule. Do you remember what the plan of Lucifer was? We read of it in Isaiah 14, and I asked you to try to remember it. The goal of his rebellion is that he wanted to be like the most high. Though the devil was unsuccessful in his motivation to be like God and take God's place, at the heart of sin, it holds out the false promise and the empty hope to those who are tempted and also to Eve. The devil who uses the serpent wants Eve to think that the forbidden fruit is the key to a new experience and new potential. If you eat, Eve, you'll know what good and evil are. You'll know something now that you didn't know before. What's more, you'll be like God. We've already seen that the devil undersold the consequences of sin. You won't surely die. And now we see, we see that he oversells the, and exaggerates the benefit of sin. You'll have a new knowledge of good and evil. You'll even be like God. Again, this was a lie about the character of God. This was a good rule, not arbitrary or petty. This was a test of Adam's and Eve's obedience and their trust in God, that they would be thankful for all the trees that God had given, and they would trust that God had his own good reasons for them not to eat from that one particular tree. That's what this was about. And the serpent said the way in which man could be like God, knowing it would be in knowing good and evil. It's quite likely that Eve thought that she would get an objective experience of these things. But she got a subjective experience instead. Let me give you an example, and this hopefully this will make it even clearer to, to the children as well. If you think back to 
the coverage of the forest fires. My sermon example was the Fort McMurray fire. But there have been so many more since then. And you think about the news coverage, the video, the pictures of, of the fire and the people having to leave their homes. That gives us objective knowledge. We know factually that there are places where there are fires that have done great damage. But subjective, subjectively, you would have subjective experience if you were one of the people in the convoy trying to leave Fort McMurray. And imagine you were one of the people who ran out of gas on the way. You were one of the people whose house burned to the ground. It was the latter kind of experience, the subjective experience of evil that the devil gave to Adam and Eve, though he wanted Eve to think that she would get an objective, factual knowledge that she didn't have before. The path to sin involves seeing sin as tempting. We see that from the first part of verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, before Eve could look at the tree and the fruit that it bore and think to herself, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's out of bounds. I must not eat it. But now she sees the fruit and it looks good and she wants it. Before it was her joy to help Adam to tend the Garden of Eden, to enjoy the luscious fruits, the sweet, crunchy vegetables in the garden. She was contented. She was thankful. Life was good. God had given them ample provision. But now she was dissatisfied with what God had given her, and she wants what he has forbidden. The tree was desired to make one wise. The tree hadn't changed, had it, church? But Eve had. The way that she viewed the tree had changed from it being forbidden to it being desirable. The path to sin sometimes includes inaction by people who know and can do something about it. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Can you try to imagine Adam standing by while Eve has a conversation with a serpent? He doesn't defend the word of God that he'd received directly. He doesn't defend the character of God or the provision of God or the threat from God. He stands by while his beloved wife goes to the tree, picks the fruit, and eats it. And when Eve offers the fruit to Adam, he eats it. How can we explain this? Sin is the height of insanity. It's irrational and wicked. Adam was there, and he did nothing to stop it. He was supposed to be Adam Eve's leader, her protector, and he failed. Lots of pastors have preached sermons and written books about the sin of Adam and Eve. Thomas Boston, the English pastor, pastor of the 18th century, showed in a, showed that in their sin, Adam and Eve broke all the Ten Commandments. And these kinds of treatments can be helpful for us as long as we discern them and, and filter them according to God's Word. 
Boys and girls, I have a question for you to answer in your minds. What was the sin of Adam and Eve? The answer is that they ate the fruit from the one tree that God said they were not allowed to eat. This is the way that sin came into the world. This is the reason that this world is as it is, where people die, often when they are old, sometimes when they are young. This is the reason that there are people in prison. Sin is the reason that people lie and break their promises, that people hurt others with their words, sometimes with their bodies. The sin of Adam and Eve is the reason for disability, disease, chronic pain, illnesses in our bodies, illnesses in our minds. Sometimes there is a link between the person's sin and the consequence in that person's life. Sometimes that can clearly be seen. Otherwise, all the pain, all the sorrow, all the brokenness, all the hatred, all the irreligion and false religion in this world is the result of sin. How are we to answer the skeptic who scoffs at the idea of a connection between a man eating a piece of fruit and the world plunged into moral chaos and spiritual ruin? We can tell such a person that Jesus believed that this story was true. And we know that because of what Jesus said about the devil in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The Apostle Paul believed that this story was true. When we return to Genesis 3, the Lord wills, I'll read from Romans 5 about a mysterious covenant connection between Adam and all of humanity. To be sure, Eve sinned first in eating the fruit, but Adam's sin impacts all of us. We don't need to know what would have happened if Eve ate the fruit and Adam didn't. We don't need to know because that didn't happen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22 are a place where Paul says that death came by a man. And verse 22 says that all die in Adam. There are sound biblical grounds from both Testaments to believe that this story is true. And isn't it true, dear ones, that there's ample evidence in your and my life from our outward sin to our secret and inner sin in our thoughts that gives evidences that the, this historical account is real, that it's not a fable or a myth. This is history. It is true. And it deeply impacts you and me. We've spent time looking at the sin of Adam and Eve and where sin came from and how sin works. But it's important that we shift our focus to ourselves now. Has your sin become a problem for you? Has it stopped being something for you to excuse and started being something that must be forgiven and removed? Do you hate your sin? Not only because there's punishment or consequences for it, but because sin is something that is against God before it is against others. 
How you answer these questions is a good test of whether the Lord is at work in your life, whether you are a Christian or not. To be sure, God has different ways of working in his people's lives, bringing them to salvation, to the truth. The Lord may show one person more of his or her sin at the beginning. He may show another person more of his or her sinful nature as life goes on. We must not make the experience of one the rule for all. And yet I can and I must say that in order for salvation in Jesus Christ to become the best news there could ever be, your sin and your need for salvation must become clearly, evidently bad news, experientially in your life. Sin needs to become a problem that is unsolvable for you, that only God can solve, cleanse, and forgive. Has that happened in your life? Do you know, do you have good reason to believe that your sin has been forgiven because God has punished it in Jesus? In the person of Jesus Christ, God acted to deal with the sin of his people. This is the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gospel. This is the hope of every Christian. Not in our own righteousness. Not in our knowledge. Only in Jesus. His life of sinlessness and holiness. His death in which he bore our sin when he was crucified. What a mercy that God tells us not only where sin came from, but what he's done about it in Jesus and what he has done and will do for all who trust in him. Blessed be his name. Amen.